Good morning. Uh, my name is Austin. I'm on the team here at the church. Uh, our lead pastor, Trevor, is actually with the middle school uh, this morning, investing and uh, in helping raise up the next generation, partnering with, with parents to kind of invest into those students. And so um, I have the honor of sharing with you um, this morning. Um, if you've been with us for a number of weeks now, or this is your first Sunday, we are in a series on Judges. The book of Judges, it's not a book that we often teach through as, as a global church, uh, but it's a really helpful book as our, our eyes are now set on Advent. As we see the Christmas trees going up in Costco and making their ways to our very own homes. You know, this past spring, we were looking at uh, the works and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and that kind of led us into to Holy Week. And this past summer, we looked at some of the early church writings, the epistle of James. And so this fall, as we prepare for the light of the world to remember his arrival into the world, we're spending some time in a, a very dark book. This is a book without a lot of upside. Uh, Trevor said at the very beginning of this series, it's going to get very dark for us. And in fact, the, the author of the book when he writes about why he's writing this book, he makes it very clear all throughout, this is not for the encouragement of your faith, this is not that you might be built up, this is not for your encouragement, etc. He wants to constantly remind God's people that they have this propensity to do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says this at the beginning of Judges, and he begins to reiterate this point at the end of the book. This is Judges chapter 2, verse 11. As the author is in the very beginning of the book, he says, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They stopped serving the Lord God alone, and they served the gods of the area, the Baals. As we journey through the book, it doesn't get any better for Israel. It only gets worse. By the time we get to Judges chapter 17, verse 6, the author simply says, In those days, everything was chaos. Israel had no king, and every single person, man, woman, and child, did as they saw fit. They did whatever they wanted to. And so Judges kind of consistently repeats this theme in, in all of the characters is, there's this rebellion against the Lord. There's this retribution of them being punished. They repent. There's the remission of their sin. There's a bit of reprieve, but then they rebel again. As we approach the final chapters of this book this week and next week, we find that no real judges appear to save Israel this time. But it just gets worse and worse and worse. And so just a, a recap of this series of Judges. In Judges chapter 1 and 2, the author kind of does a, a dual introduction to the book. Uh, it reminds us that Israel fails to do a couple of things. First, they fail to drive out the Canaanites from the land. They'd been given this promised land, and one of the things they were to do was to drive out the Canaanites. But in chapter 1, the author reminds us that Israel failed to do that. 
And then in chapter 2, not only did they fail to drive out the Canaanites, they failed to obey the commands, the words, and the laws of God. They did whatever was right in their own eyes. Judges chapters 3 through 16, they introduce us into a series of judges. Folks like Barak, Gideon, Samson. But even when we've looked at the lives of the judges, we notice that they're not exactly model Israelites. They have some pretty significant flaws of their own. And as we make it to Judges chapter 17 through 21 between this week and next week, it just highlights the absolute total depravity of Israel. Their absolute and complete waywardness. And so this morning we'll be in Judges chapter 17 to 18. It's a large portion of text and so we're going to hit some of these beats fairly quickly, but we're introduced really to, to four characters, if you will. And when we look at every single character, we see the waywardness of these characters. And so between Judges 17 and 18, we're going to see the waywardness of a mother. We're going to see the waywardness of her son. We're going to see the waywardness even of the spiritual elites, if you will, the priest. And then the waywardness of an entire tribe of Israel. The waywardness of a mother, a son, a priest, and a tribe. But I, I, I want to start with this. I, I want to start with a mother's intuition. Man, the intuition of a mom is, it's unlike anything I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, my mom was excellent at knowing when her kids were out of line, especially when we thought, my mom didn't know that we were out of line. And in fact, my mom, uh, at certain times, she might be in the kitchen cooking dinner. And you know, us kids were scheming, thinking, oh man, how great would it be to have a, a piece of gum before dinner? So she'd be in there kind of cooking over the stove, and we'd sneak into the bedroom and sneak into her purse and get her extra spearmint gum. And before dinner, man, we would all just get a little piece of gum. We'd sit there together as kids and be chewing on this gum, and then, you know, we'd hear from our mom, dinner's ready. That's the moment. Ditch the evidence. Throw it in the trash can. And so we throw it in the trash can. We make our way to the, you know, the kitchen, and we start putting our plates together and making our way to the table. And without fail, I don't know how she did it, she would just say something to the effect of, Man, my, I, I get the sense that there's a few pieces of gum missing from my, uh, my gum uh, bag in the purse. And we knew immediately, she knows. She's on to us. And one of us would pipe up and confess, Mom, we're guilty. We went to the bedroom and we had some gum before dinner. There's something about an, an intuition of a mom when she knows something isn't quite right. <laughs> When we get to Judges chapter 17, we're introduced to this kind of mom. This is a Judges chapter 17. We're kind of beginning in verse 17 here. It says, now there was a man named Micah. This is, I'm sorry, verse 1. Now a man named Micah was from the hill country of Ephraim. And it says that he approaches his mom in verse 2. He says, mom i got to tell you something. i got to admit to something. 
the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse. I got to admit, I'm the one. I have the silver with me. I took it. And the mom looks at this character named Micah and says, Lord bless you, my son. How wonderful of you to return this silver to me. It's interesting that Micah knows about this curse. It's almost as if the mom was in the kitchen making her food and kind of utters loudly, just loudly enough for Micah to hear a curse on the person that has my silver. (laughs) Micah runs back in with the silver. Oh, good for you, son. Bless you. Verse 3. When Micah returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she says this, and watch this. This is where we begin to see some of the waywardness of the mom. She says, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. These 1,100 shekels are for the Lord. And church, at this time, 1,100 shekels, that's a lot of money. And so we think, oh, good for this woman. She gets her 1,100 shekels back, and now she's consecrating it all to the Lord. But then she says, I'm consecrating it to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. If you're an Israelite reading this, you're thinking, whoa, 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 that's not, that's not what we do with silver. We don't make idols. We don't overlay images with it. But we start to see this, the mom is trying to do good, but then she's wayward and gives it to her son to make this idol. And so the mom takes the silver, she's just gotten back from her thieving son, gives it back to him. Verse 4, so after he returned the silver to his mother, she sets out to do what she had said to do. But instead of consecrating all the 1,100 shekels, she just carves out about 200 of them. She takes 200, keeps the rest for herself, and gives them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. We see the waywardness of the mom in this moment. Doing a few things. One, having 1,100 shekels of silver, consecrating it all to the Lord, but then when it becomes time to give, she does what's fit in her own eyes. I'm not going to give all of it. I'm just going to give a portion of it. And even as I've consecrated this portion now to the Lord, it's not consecrated properly. It's given back to my son to go and to make an idol. Some commentators have even commentated on the mom's reaction to her son. That as this son steals a significant portion of silver, some would say decades, this is decades worth of wages from his mom. When he returns it, it's not a, hey, good for you, now get to your room, you're grounded. There's no discipline. There's no calling the son to repent for dishonoring his mom and his dad. He brings the silver back and she says, hey, good for you. Now I'm just going to give it back to you. Go make an idol with it. So the reader's reading this thing, ooh, this is not going well. In fact, when we see the mom, we see that she's acting in a way in which she does what she sees fit in her own eyes. She fails to discipline her son properly, to call him to 
repentance. She fails to give all of the silver she consecrated to the Lord actually to the Lord. And the silver she does actually choose to give to the Lord, she gives it to make idols, which was completely against the Israelites' way of life. When we read this, and we'll hit this theme throughout the morning as we look at the rest of chapter 17 and 18, this is one of the reasons why it's so important to deeply know God's Word. To know how He teaches us to interact with our kids teaches us to interact with our parents. How when we consecrate, make oaths, and promise things to the Lord, how we ought to fulfill those. Proper ways of worship by avoiding idol worship. It's important to know God's word that we can, so that we can live in such a way that we don't live in a way that seems right to us, but we can accurately live in a way that's right to God. And so a question we'll hear throughout the morning is, in the same way that this mom did what she saw fit in the way that she treated her son, in the way that she handled these finances, and in the way that she worshipped God, what are you doing this morning? In which you're acting in such a way that it seems right to you, but if you really looked at God's word, you would know, this isn't how God's called me to live. I'm not living in such a way that it's right in God's eyes. I'm living in such a way that it's right in my eyes. In other words, doing what is right in the Lord's eyes matters. And it's important. And as Trevor mentioned earlier, it's actually for our joy. Our obedience, yes, but for our joy. So that's the waywardness of the mother. The next is the, the waywardness of the son. You could imagine a son like this saying, hey mom, this is great. I, I kind of, you know, I'm glad that I, you know, I returned the silver to you. But, you know, we probably really shouldn't make an idol out of this silver. Instead, Micah's name means something to the effect of, uh, who is like Yahweh? It's a name steeped in Israelite worship and Israelite tradition. And so Micah ought to know how to worship. He ought to know how to act and to live in light of God's word. And so Micah has this amazing opportunity to say, hey, mom, I think, you know, the 1100, you gave me 200. Maybe we should make good and actually consecrate all of it, not just 200 shekels. And maybe we shouldn't make an idol. Maybe we ought to use this to, to give to the temple or to help the poor and the marginalized. Micah has the chance to, to kind of stand up and to do what's right. So we pick up our story in verse 17. Now there was this... Uh, man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim. This is, I'm sorry, verse 1. We're kind of rereading that, that first part. And he said to his mother, hey, those 1,100 shekels of silver uh, that were taken from you about which I heard you utter a curse, I have them with me, and I took it. And so he takes the silver that the mom gives back to him, and it says he goes and they make an idol, and the idol, Micah puts it in his house. And look at the scene that we see in verse 5 about this house. It says, now the man Micah not just only had this idol, but he had an entire shrine for this idol. And he made an ephod, and he made household gods to go alongside of it. Uh, commentators talk about these household gods in such a way that these could have been the uh, um, ancestors 
and forefathers, people they thought in pagan religions had died, passed on, and were still kind of looking down on them. He says, so he brings this idol back. He has a shrine for the idol. He has an ephod. He has household gods surrounding this idol made out of silver. And once he has this whole shrine, etc., he looks at one of his sons and he says, hey, son, why don't you actually just come over here and be the priest over all of this? We chuckle a little bit when we hear that. That might have actually been a common practice if there wasn't a priest in the area from an order of a priestly tribe. You might appoint one of your sons to be the priest. But what we notice here is Micah's actions, his waywardness, his idol worship, it's very much in line with the way his mom is living. It reminds me of, you know, this friend I had in middle school. And we'd all, you know, during lunch, there's, you know, dozens of tables in the cafeteria. And everyone kind of knows what table they're going to go to during lunch. And so we kind of had this pod of, you know, six, seven, eight friends that kind of ate lunch together. And over the weeks of this middle school friend, I just thought, man, this guy chews his food in a really interesting fashion. This is, this is pretty wild, right? All the, the normal things you'd expect from somebody, hey, chew with your mouth closed. Don't talk with food in your mouth. Those kinds of things for this friend were out the window. And I thought, man, where did he, where did he get this from? This is just the wildest thing. Summertime rolls around, and we kind of hop from house to house in the summertime and end up, me and a few of my friends, at dinner with this middle school friend's family. And we're sitting there eating dinner, and the food gets placed, and the parents start eating. I think, oh, this is where you got this. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. When we get to Micah, we shouldn't be surprised that he doesn't stand up to his mom. We shouldn't be surprised that even that, that he's living this wayward kind of a life. In fact, parents, oftentimes our kids will deeply model not what we tell them oftentimes, although it's important to tell them the proper things, but what they catch us doing, what they pick up on us doing. Do they pick up on us reading our Bibles, on us praying, on us serving? Moments in the car or in the living room, worshiping. Parents, are, are we setting a good model, an example for our kids? Because they're, they're picking up on it. For Micah, he's picked up on the waywardness of his mom. In the same way that his mom vacillates between good and not good, Micah vacillates between good and not good. He wants to worship, but he worships improperly setting up a shrine and the ephod and household gods. When we look at Micah, we see that he falls short in a number of ways. First, he's a stealing son. Steals decades worth of wealth from his mom. We see that Micah falls short in not honoring his father and his mother, especially properly. And we see that Micah falls short in his continued worshiping of idols. When we look at the household of the mom and the son, we see that it's wayward. Micah, like his mom, does not know God's word. And when you don't know God's word, 
it's hard to live rightly before God. And so instead, Micah, like his mom, lives in such a way that he does whatever he sees fit. And so, again, between Micah's failings, stealing, dishonoring, not honoring his mom and his dad, not worshiping properly, but worshiping idols, a question for us is what are some ways that we're continuing to live in such a way that it's not right before God? but we're doing whatever we see fit in our own eyes with our mom and our dad. Whatever we see fit with our mom and our dad's resources, the way we see fit to worship. Again, doing what is right in the Lord's eyes matters. That's the waywardness of the mom. That's the waywardness of the son. And this is the waywardness of a priest. So Micah has just installed in about verse 5 and 6 his own son as priest. And then verse 7 rolls around. This is a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. It's kind of the center of priestly functions, the center of prayer and of worship. He's from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, one of the most prominent tribes of the area. Verse 8, he left that town in search of some other place to stay. And as he's kind of journeying on his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. And based on the amount of money his mom had and that Micah took from him, it's the kind of house you might say, I'd like to stay there. And so the Levite goes up to the house and Micah asks him, where are you from? The Levite responds, I'm from Bethlehem in Judah, he said. And I'm looking for a place to stay. In reality, the Levite ought to have known where he was going to stay. The Levites weren't given land, but they were given a series of about 48 cities that they could have stayed in. And instead of this Levite finding one of those cities, he's just kind of, he's just kind of wandering out on his own, doing his own thing, looking for a great house to stay in. In verse 10, when Micah learns that he's from Bethlehem, in Judah, that he's a Levite and looking for a place to stay, Micah said to him, oh man, this is good. I've got a shrine. I've got an ephod. I've got some household gods. Uh, my, my priest son here isn't quite cutting it. I could use someone like you. So come live with me. Be my father and priest. And I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year. And I'll give you new clothes. And I'll give you food. When the Levite hears this, he doesn't counteroffer. He says, man, that sounds like a good deal. Because I see the clothes you're wearing. I'd like some of those. I see the food on your table. I'd like to eat some of that. I see the house you're staying in. I would love for this to be my roof. So in verse 11, the Levite agrees to live with him. And the young man became like one of his sons to him. Verse 12, then Micah installed the Levite. This idea of installed is ordained, appointed, filled his hand with priestly functions. And the young man, this Levite, became Micah's priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Whew, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest and he's a lot better than my son. When we look at this, this is another moment for the Levite to walk in and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Dude, Micah, this is, all, this is all wrong. You've got an idol made out of silver here. 
You've got shrines. You've got household gods. I mean, I might be able to stay here for a little bit to help get your house in order spiritually, to pray for you, to help rid your house of idols. Like, hey, Micah, let's do some house cleaning. Instead, the Levite says, hey, a shrine, an ephod, some household gods. Ah, I can make this work. Uh, This reminds me a little bit of uh, the famous basketball player, uh, LeBron James. LeBron James had, had a, just won a championship in Cleveland, Ohio, his hometown, kind of a blue-collar city, small market, etc. And he's about to win this championship, and uh, he wins, and he becomes this free agent. And everyone's asking, what's LeBron going to do next? Is he going to go and stay in his hometown, or is he going to look for a bigger market where the lights are brighter and the money is better and it's more comfortable. And it kind of became this, as always, a bit of this uh, media spectacle. And we learned that the most recent pick he made was to go to one of the most legacy teams in the NBA, the Los Angeles Lakers. And when he does this, Cleveland is not excited about it. When we look at, you know, people would say about LeBron James is he's not exactly loyal to a city or loyal to a franchise, kind of loyal to what, loyal to his thing, loyal to what he's got going on. And so when this Levite comes into this house, when he should have been somewhere else in a different city, he says, ah, that other city wasn't going to pay me as well. The housing wasn't going to be as nice, and certainly their clothes are not as nice. So I I think I'm just going to kind of look out for myself here, and I'm going to stay here. The priest, unfortunately, is really just in it for himself. And we'll see that a little bit more here in just a moment. We see that the priest falls short in finding one of the Levitical cities that he was supposed to go to, doing what was right in his own eyes. In a sense, he's teaching falsely by not confronting Micah and saying, dude, this is wrong. You should know God's word. You should not worship idols like this. But says, ah, this is an all right deal. And ultimately, like his mom, and ultimately like the son, and now like this Levite, he's worshiping idols. The mom, the son, the Levite living in such a way that it seems right in their own eyes. And so the question again for us is, what are you doing? How are you living in such a way that it's right in your own eyes, but not in line with God's word? That's the waywardness of a mom, of a son, of a Levite. And now we'll look at the the waywardness of a tribe, and we're going to blitz this quite a bit because we want to spend plenty of time here at communion. We've turned the corner. We're in chapter 18, verse 1. The mom is wayward. The son is wayward. The Levite is wayward. The the person reading this book is thinking, man, I hope in, in chapter 18 it turns around. I hope somebody comes and fixes the situation. Verse 1 of chapter 18. In those days, Israel had no king. But as we read it, there's no savior coming for the mom, the son, or the priest. But it's just going to get worse. The second half of verse 1. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own. 
when we go back to chapter 1, we remember the Danites should not have been seeking a place of their own because the Lord had allotted them an inheritance, had allotted them a piece of land, and they failed to take it. They failed to push the Canaanites out of the land that was supposed to be theirs. And so now the Danites are, they're wondering on their own, kind of asking the question, hey, where should we settle? Because they had not yet come into their inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Verse 2, so the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtel to spy out the land and to explore it. It sounds a bit like the book of uh, Numbers where they go to spy out the land. These men represented all the Danites in the same way in the former book, the spies had represented all the tribes of Israel. And they told them, go explore the land. This is a land they ought not to be exploring. This is a land they ought not to be taking. Nonetheless, the spies entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah where they spent the night. Just like the Levite, ooh, this is a nice house. We should camp out here. Verse 3, when they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They may have known him from being around Bethlehem. He may have had an accent of some sort. It may have been the, the rituals that he was performing, but they recognized this young voice. This is a Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? And the priest told them what Micah had done for him. He offered me food. He offered me clothes. He offered me great wages. Honestly, guys, I'm just a hired hand here. I'm just kind of looking out for myself, and so now I'm his priest. Then they said to him, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. And the priest is looking at this whole tribe of people, and we already know the priest is a little bit kind of in it for himself and says, Oof, it'd be a good thing to be in good standing with an entire tribe instead of just a family. And so he says, uh, go in peace, your journey has the Lord's approval. Even though it doesn't, because the Danites ought not to be there in the first place. The land they're spying out is not theirs to take. The land they ought to be taking is far from where they are. And so the men go. They spy out the land and they find a people living in peace and security. And the land lacked nothing and it was prosperous and it's flowing with milk and honey. And they're thinking, man, this, is, this land is easy to take. They don't have any allies. They don't have anybody that will come to their rescue. Ooh, we, this land, we need to take it. So verse 8, when they returned to Zorah and Eshtael, their fellow Danites asked them, how did you find these things? They answered, don't worry about it. Come on, let's just go get them. Let's attack them. We've seen the land. It's good. It's prosperous. Aren't you going to do something? In fact, when you get there, don't hesitate to go in there and take it over. When you get there, you'll find also an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing, whatever. Verse 11, then 600 men of the Danites armed for battle set out for Zorah and Eshtael. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why the place was known as Kiriath-Jerim is called Manadan to this day. And from there, they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came up to Micah's house. Verse 14, then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish and said to their fellow Danites, do you know that one of these houses actually is a, it's a pretty cool house. 
It's got an ephod. It's got a household of gods. It actually has this image overlaid in silver, and man, it's big. Now, when you get there, you know what to do. Historically, for the Israelites, this would have been a wink-wink. You know what to do. Destroy it. Destroy the household gods. Destroy the idols. Worship Yahweh alone. Verse 15. So they turned in there to the house. They went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. Verse 16. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gate to intimidate Micah and the people living there. Verse 17. And the five men who had spied out the land went inside and they didn't crush the idols. They didn't destroy the gods and burn the ephod. It says they took them. They took the idol. They took the ephod. They took the household gods while the priest and the 600 men stood at the entrance of the gate. And the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods. The priest said to them, hey, uh, what, are you guys, what are you doing here? They answered, hey, dude, be quiet. Don't say a word. In fact, we've got a pretty ripe offer for you. Come with us. Come with this entire tribe. Be our father and priest. Isn't it better for you to serve an entire tribe? And not just a tribe, but a clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest doesn't say, well, let me counteroffer this. The priest doesn't say, I don't know, I got it pretty good here. This isn't a bad deal. Verse 20 says, the priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, he took the household gods, he took the idol, and he went along with the people. When we look at this section of scripture, we find throughout chapter 17 and 18, there is moment after moment after moment for somebody to make things right. For someone not just to do what's right in their own eyes, but to do what's right in the eyes of God, to know God's word, to live it out, and to confront people. And so when the mother is wayward, the son doesn't confront her and say, I know God's word, we ought not to be doing this. And when the son is wayward, the Levite comes, and the Levite has the chance to say, we know how we ought to live. This is not how we ought to live. And when the Levite doesn't do it, an entire tribe of Israel comes that could crush the house and the idols and the household gods and put everything in its right place, and instead they play along, taking the idols, the ephod, and the household gods. When the author of Judges is writing this, he's writing to remind God's people that no one is exempt from doing what's right in their own eyes. And in the myriad of examples here, we are all susceptible to doing what is right in our own eyes when it comes to the way that we treat our mom and our dad. And we are all susceptible to do what we think is right when it comes to how we treat our kids. And we are all susceptible to do what we think is right in our own eyes when it comes to our finances, our money, the way that we worship, 
the way that we honor God, the way that we speak about people. If we take a step back and we look at the mom and we look at the son and we look at the Levite and we look at this entire tribe, we ought not to think to ourselves, what foolish people. They should have known better. Our response probably ought to be, and how foolish am I? Because I am so much like them. So quick to do what is right in my own eyes. In fact, this is the gospel. When we read the text, we find that we're all just creatures. We didn't end up here by accident. We didn't will ourselves to be here. We did not create our own existence, but we are creatures created by God. And by what we have done, and also by what we have left undone, more times than not, we have done what we've seen fit in our own eyes. In fact, Christ is the only one that has come, and from start to finish, honored God and his word, not seeking his own interests, but the entrance, the, 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 uh, the interests of the Father. And in fact, every Sunday when we come here, this is the invitation that we receive when we come to the table of communion, to recognize our waywardness, to recognize that more times than not, we do what's right in our eyes and not in the eyes of the Lord. And we come before the table remembering that, confessing our sins, asking for forgiveness with the assurance that we're forgiven. As we come to communion, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. It's actually Christ that was never wayward. It was Christ that committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Neither did he dishonor his father and mother, his finances, or the worship of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This one that was faithful, Jesus. This one that was perfect, Jesus. This one that was never wayward, Jesus, was treated as one that was unfaithful. Treated as one that was wayward. Treated as one that was sin on the cross so that in him we might be seen as faithful. Even though when we come to the table, we recognize that we're not. When we come to the table of communion, we remember that we oftentimes do what is right in our own eyes, and yet Christ is faithful to forgive our sin, faithful to forgive our waywardness.